Welcome to the Lakeside Baptist Church Podcast. We pray you are blessed as you hear the Word of God today. For more information regarding Lakeside Baptist Church, please visit lakeside.ase.au. So some of you guys might have heard of a guy uh, called William Carey. Uh, so some of you guys might have gone to Carey Baptist College down the road. Uh, but William Carey, he was a missionary uh, over in India at the turn of the 19th century. Uh, and so he, he'd come over to India, and he came across this practice that was called sati. And, and so sati uh, means that the faithful wife or the true woman, and what, what that meant was that there were certain things that if you were a true woman, if you were a faithful wife, that you had to do. And, and so as he came across this, he was absolutely horrified. Because the practices of, of sati involved that if your, if your husband died, to be a true woman, to be a true and faithful wife, you were supposed to throw yourself on the fire of your husband's grave. And, and so in this, in this, this village and, and, and in certain areas uh, in India, this was how you were to be a true woman. And he was devastated. And so William Carey, he, he knew what, what, what God said was true. He knew what was just and what was right. And so, so William Carey actually campaigned against this injustice. He said, no, it wasn't actually true that, that if you're a true woman, that, that, you would, that you would actually go to your own death because your husband had died. He, he knew that that was wrong because in, inherently everyone is made in, in God's image and that, that is something that is unjust and something that is not true. So William Carey cared about people because he knew that people were made in the image of God. And today, as we, as we look at truth and justice and what contributes to, to truth and justice, we're thinking, we have to think about what is actually true and what is just. Because as we go through history and as we go through different cultures and subcultures, people have argued for what is the right thing to do and what is true and what is just. Even today, what is true and what is just, even within Australia, is changing. And so right now, we have a bunch of parties that are arguing with, with each other with what is, the, what is just, what is right, what is true. They're, you know, we have one party that's saying that, you know, if we do this and this and this, then, then we're going to be rightly done by as people of WA. And there's another, another party that's saying, no, they're wrong, what they're saying isn't true, what they're saying they're going to do isn't right for us, and so we have to do something completely different. We, we have this argument about what is true, what is just, and what is right. And so over time, what is true, what is just and what is right, in our culture, it actually kind of changes. Like we, we have different standards as we go through the scope of time and what is true and what is right for some reason looks different. And it's almost like, like over and through time, as this kind of standard changes, it's almost like the goalposts are always moving. And even for you guys who, who are probably a little bit older than me, you can remember back to the good old days where, where things were different and what was right and what was true and what was just was different. And so it changes through time. The goalposts move and what is right and just and true changes. And so as we think about truth and justice today, we're going to be looking at, at biblical justice and biblical truth. Because when we come to the Bible... There's a fixed standard for what is true and what is just. And so when we come to the Bible, the, the goalposts never move. 
The standard always stays the same. What is truth and what is justice always stays the same. And the key thing that we talk about when we talk about truth and justice is that that we treat God in accordance to who He is. And we believe that people are made in the image of God, that everyone has value and and are reflective of God. And and because we believe that, we treat people according to that. We we treat people with value. We treat people with justice and, and truth because they are made in the image of God. And so biblical truth and biblical justice is ultimately concerned with, with treat, treating God according to who He is and the proper treatment of humanity. And that's where we get the greatest command, love God and love others. That's biblical justice and biblical truth. And so as we continue to think about truth and justice today, I want us to think about what, like in terms of upholding the value of God and upholding the value of people who are made in His image. We're true to the image of God and there's justice for people who are made in the image of God and that does mean that there is retribution when we do things wrong and when we don't uphold God and we don't uphold the value of God, but it also means that justice and truth is restorative. So justice means restoring people who are marginalised, people who are oppressed, people who are not treated justly, and that when false truths are preached, we we restore that. Justice is also restorative. So so justice is retribution for people who do not value God and don't value people who are made in His image, but it also is an act of restoration for those who are marginalised or mistreated. And when we conduct ourselves in that kind of way, when we use biblical justice, when we use biblical truth, it it brings about a culture of goodness. When we we act with justice towards people, when we treat people with justice, when we restore marginalised people, when when we preach truth, it brings about a culture of goodness. And there's two main shortfalls that we see in this, and and I'm going to look at what they are and how we fall into them. And so the first one is direct injustice and false truth. Direct injustice and false truth, and this destroys goodness. The reason why it's so important to talk about this is because everyone everyone kind of thinks that, you know, I I would never be the kind of person that does something. You know, I'm never going to marginalise someone. I'm never going to treat someone with injustice. I'm never going to take advantage of someone... But for some reason, people continue to fall into it. We always assume that we're going to remain on the moral high ground, but for some reason, we fall into this injustice. No one, no one is, is beyond this. No one manages to somehow not fall into this category. In, in some way or another, we all find ourselves doing this injustice. And if you look at the reason why, one of the big things is that it's because we have power. And we try to use that power to tip the scales. We try to tip the scales in our favour at someone else's expense. And that's why we have to restrict power. So, you know, we don't say, kids, you can do whatever you want, you can run the house, you know, spend the, here's the credit card going. Like, we don't give kids that kind of power 
because that would be really bad because they can't be trusted with that power. They'll take advantage of it. They'll tip the scales in order their favour. They would, they would, you know, buy a plane ticket for their little brother and they'd send them to some foreign country so they never have to see them again. Because if you give a, you know, if you give a child power, they're going to abuse it. We, we, when we get power, we try to use it to tip the scales in our favour. You know, if we give people the power to drive at whatever speed they want, they're going to be doing 80Ks an hour through school zones. But, but inevitably, we have to give people some power. If, if there's no power in the world, then, then things don't work. And so we have to hand out power. And inevitably, when people have that power, they still abuse it. People still try to tilt the scales in their favour. And here, here's the dangerous thing, and the, and the scary thing is that when you tilt the scales in your favour, at some point, when, when justice comes along, the scales, have, the scales will be tilted back. And so justice comes back against you. And so if you, if you do 80Ks an hour through a school zone and, and you see a flash in your rearview mirror, what happens? The scales tip back against you. There, there's this retribution. And so that's how, that's how kind of things work. But what do we try and do in order to avoid those scales tipping back? We lie. So say, oh, someone stole my car, couldn't help it, like I'm a victim here. Or, you know, or if you, if you steal someone's lunch, you'll be like, oh, no, I didn't steal your lunch, it's fine. Because we don't want the scales to tip back. Because then we might have to buy someone lunch and then we're kind of, we break even. And that's not to say that when the scales tip back that it always means that there's a perfect system of, injust of justice, but it means that, that if in order for us to keep the scales tilted after we tilt them, we have to tell, like we have to conceal the truth or break the truth. And, and this is what happens in the story of David. David was a, a man after God's own, own heart. He was a great leader. He was a great king. And he was given a, an amazing amount of power. But inevitably, he, he takes advantage of that and he tips the scales. And as he, as he fears getting caught and the scales getting tipped back, what does he do? He conceals the truth. And some people uh, kind of try to say lots of different things here, but we're going to go through it and we're going to break it down and what it means. And so uh, if we start in uh, verse 1, it says, In the springtime, uh, when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men with the whole Israelite army. Uh, they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So first thing, what's fishy here? So when the kings go off to war, where is David? He's at home. What are you doing, David? What's going on? And the writer isn't being, isn't being subtle here. David's staying at home. Like, you know, and, and there's things that you know, people will say that, all right, so uh, the, the people tried to protect David and they're worried about their king you know, going and getting killed in war, so they protect him. But what was the point? The reason Israel wanted a king in the first place was because they wanted someone to lead him into battle. And so he's already trying to tilt the scales in his favour to protect himself while his men go out to war. Then one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, 
Uh, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so two things to mention here. So first, David knows that she's married. This isn't some kind of accident. And who she's married to, so he's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, the Hittites were refugees in Israel. And, and Eliam and Uriah, so both Bathsheba's uh, father and her, uh, and her husband, were both people that were high up and worked hard and were loyal to David's army. So there were people who might have been in the Israelite culture more vulnerable because they weren't as important, they weren't true Israelites, but they were people that were loyal to his army. They were, they were loyal to the kingdom of Israel, even though they weren't as important. And, and so what commentators will say is that, you know, uh, they, were, they were loyal but expendable. And so then David sent messages to get her, not that she comes voluntary, but she takes, he, he takes Bathsheba. Uh, she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. She went back home, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David, in his power as king, took her knowing that she was married. He, he tilts the, the scales in his favour and he uses power to take advantage of a vulnerable person. And some people have kind of told a, a narrative where Bathsheba was kind of contributing to this, like she was trying to show off, but it, but it, doesn't, say, it doesn't say that. It says that she was purifying herself from her month. She was following the law. Even though she was a foreigner to Israel, she was following the Israelite law. She was doing the right thing. And while she was doing that, David took advantage of her. While she was loyal to the kingdom, while her husband was loyal away fighting at war where he couldn't protect her, David took advantage of her. It's also clear because she was purifying herself uh, that she wasn't pregnant. And so it's obvious that David is the one that is in the wrong here. David is the one who has got her pregnant. And so now, what does David have to do in order to keep the scales tilted? He has to tell a lie. And so what he does is he tries to get Uriah to come back from battle, back to, back to Israel. And, and he, he tries to get Uriah to go home and sleep with Bathsheba so he can cover up what he's done wrong, so the scales won't tip back. So Bathsheba remains disadvantaged and taken advantage of and has no retribution whatsoever. So that Bathsheba continues to have to live a life where no one knows what has been done to her. And so, but while David can remain at top and no one knows what he has done. He's done something wrong and he tries to cover it up. Instead of dignity being restored, David tries to cover up so judgment doesn't come to him. And so as Uriah comes back, Uriah is too loyal to his army, to his king's army. He says that I can't go home and sleep with Bathsheba. I can't go back to my wife because the army's at war. It's not fair, David. How could I stay home and be with my wife while everyone's at war. Meanwhile, David is at home sleeping with other people's wives. David is powerful and disloyal while Uriah is vulnerable and loyal. And because David is worrying about the scales getting tipped back, he conceals the truth. And the thing is, this isn't just the power that's held by kings. 
It's not the kind of power that's just held, you know, it's, a, it's actually the kind of power that's held by people that live in a prosperous country. You know, a country where we can take advantage of people by clicking buttons and, and buying clothes. You know, we, we have all kinds of power. It could be wealth, it could be strength, it could be fear, it could be even, even just the fact that the scales are already tipped against someone. And, and so when we, when we wield this power, when we hold power, we need to be extremely careful of how we use it. We need to be extremely careful of how we wield the power that we have because we are always going to be constantly tempted. We're always going to be wanting to take advantage of that power to benefit ourselves. And when we do that, we tip the scales and we disadvantage other people. We take advantage of other people. And it breaks goodness. It hurts people. People die when the scales are tipped. People, people have to live, you know, in pain and agony and brokenness because the scales are tipped. And then, and then when justice tries to be had, sometimes what we do is we hide the truth or we change the truth or we try and twist things so that the scales will never be tipped back. Because we have the power. And so we need to be really, really, really careful with what we do with power. What do we do with the power that we have? And as we see how it unfolds in chapter 12, uh, so at the end of uh, chapter 11, it says that, that what David did displeased the Lord. And as it unfolds, Nathan rebukes David on behalf of God, and he says that, that there's going to be calamity on, on your family, your, your wives are going to be taken away from you, and your son is going to die. And that's heartbreaking, that, that God would do something like that. And, and often we kind of look at this and, and think about, like, why, why would God kill this innocent child and why would that happen? And there's so much we can unpack with that. But when God does this kind of stuff, it's not because he, he's wild, it's not because he's, he's out of control, but it's done to illustrate how much God hates injustice. When God kills people in the Bible, it's because God hates injustice. If you look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's these two angels that come to Lot's house, and it says that all the, men, all the people of the place, all the men, young and old, come to rape these two men and to do unspeakable things. And this kind of culture, this kind of culture where they just want to take advantage of people and hurt people, God's like, I'm going to destroy this city because that is so unjust. In the story of Egypt and the Exodus, uh, you know, the, the Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptians had taken advantage of the Israelites. They'd enslaved them and, and taken, put them into forced labor, treated them poorly. They'd killed their sons. And so God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. I'm going to bring plagues and you are going to, I'm going to, to destroy, you know, you're, I'm going to take, take your sons away from you because what you have done is unjust. And, and it's not just a, an Old Testament thing either. Even uh, in, in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they sell this land and say, we're going to sell this block of land and we're going to give it all to the poor. But instead they withhold some of that money 
They, they take advantage of the poor by trying to, you know, use this thing and say, this is what we're going to do, we're going to give all this money, but they withhold it because they, they want to tilt the scales, they want, it, they want to look good, they want things to happen in their favour, they want to tilt the scales and withhold money. And when Paul asks them about what's happened, what happened, they say, we, we've given it all away. And so what happens? God kills them, they drop dead on the spot. Because God hates injustice. Because people are made in His image. People have value. People are important. And when we, when we hurt those people, when we take advantage of those people to tilt the scales, it breaks God's heart. And it destroys goodness. The, the, next, the next thing that comes along is injustice and half-truths. And so while we might not necessarily always be the one that's trying to tilt the scales, sometimes we try and escape from goodness. Because a goodness culture and doing what is just and what is true is really hard. It requires sacrifice. And if you look at the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we see this expert in the law who challenges Jesus. He's trying to catch Jesus out in a little bit of a debate. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so, so Jesus uh, replies by asking a question back. He says, you know, what, what's actually written in the law? You know, how, how do you read it? And so he Wow, that was scary. Um, what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we talked about before. That is what is true and just. And so Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, for context here, if you're, if you're told this, that there's, there's something that kind of needs to be said. This is a big statement. If I, if I was to say, I've got a million dollars, and if you have my house spotless by the time I get back from the weekend, you get that a million dollars. It's all yours. But if the house isn't clean enough when I get home, you get nothing. Now, if you walk into my house and you think, all right, I'm going to give it a quick vacuum, I might clean the bathroom sink, and then we should be good, I'll take my million dollars and walk away, you're probably wrong. Like, I'm probably wanting more than that for a million dollars. And so it reflects his attitude where, where this, this teacher of the law, he actually, he's trying to see how little he can actually do. And so rather, so if, if you wanted to get that million dollars for cleaning my house, you might decide that I'm going to do everything I possibly can. I'm going to repaint the whole thing, I'm going to change the carpets, you know, I'm going to just... I'm going to, I'll even rebuild the house if I have to. I'm going to make sure this house is spick and span to try and ensure that I get this $1 million. Or you could do the lazy thing and say, Brayden, what do I have to do to clean the house? Like, how much cleaning do I have to do to get this $1 million? Like, vacuuming, check, all right, I'll mop it, I'll do your laundry, I'll even clean the shower. You know, like, I'm going to go through, like, how, what, what exactly do I have to do, rather than, like, doing, all right, I'm going to do the best I can, I'm going to clean the house as best I can, what are the exact, what's the bare minimum to get this million dollars? That's what this guy's trying to do. He's like, all right, I don't want to miss out on eternal life, but I also don't want to do more than I have to. So he says, what do I have to do? What's the bare minimum? And, and so Jesus answers this, by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. What do I have to do? What's the bare minimum I have to do to get eternal life? 
And this is where we, we kind of tell ourselves these half-truths, like, how, how can I excuse myself from doing the right thing? We might have good reasons. Like, we can, we can make up some pretty good reasons to, to not do something that we know we should do. It's like saying when, when, you know, when you're eating, you know, unhealthy food, it's like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry. I had KFC 10 times this week, it's fine, it's not, no worries. It's got chicken in it, there's lettuce in the burger. You know, like there's, there's things that you can kind of tell yourselves that are kind of true, but they're not really true. There's these half-truths that we tell ourselves to excuse ourselves from doing the right thing, and it's this direct injustice, it's this escape from doing the right thing. And, and so this is what it, it says. It says, a man was going down to Jerusalem... To Jericho, when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he passed, so so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And sometimes we can kind of read the, the, the actions of the character into the story, but really, these are good people. Probably better than us, if anything. They're really good people, but they, for some reason, pass by this man on the other side of the road. And there are a lot of good reasons. They're important people. They've got jobs to do. They're busy people. They're, they're important. They, they probably have somewhere to be, and so there's no time... To, to stop and concern themselves with a guy that's probably going to die anyway. It's dangerous. Like, you know, even, even the fact that the guy's bleeding, he, he's unclean, and so if you're a holy person, like, that kind of can have an impact on your job because then you've got to wait to be clean again. And so there's a lot of reasons that they could have said, I've got to avoid this guy because that's going to be a problem for me. It's kind of true, but the man's still on the side of the road dying. And we kind of tell these half-truths, and by doing that, we excuse ourselves from doing what is right. And we're not necessarily the one that's taking advantage of this person like the robbers were, but it's an indirect injustice towards this person. We're just leaving this guy on the side of the road. You're not the person who tipped the scales, but you're just leaving the scales tipped because it's too hard to tip them back. And that's what we sometimes do. We, 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 we make up excuses to not do stuff because it's hard. But, but the thing is, in order to have a goodness culture, you have to do the hard work. When we make excuses and when we try to get out of things, we, we don't bring about a goodness culture. When we excuse ourselves and, and try and wiggle out of things and, and make excuses for why we don't have the time or the resources or whatever it is, to do goodness, to, to, to fight for injustice, to help people tip the scales back. We never see a, a, a goodness culture because we just leave the scales tip. Goodness is still broken. And, and so he goes on and talks about this good Samaritan. And, and this is where truth, truth and justice is goodness. And so what does the, the Samaritan do? So Samaritan came, uh, and as he travelled, he came to where the man was, and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
put the man back on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The, the Good Samaritan embodies what it means to have a goodness culture. That is, that is what he does is what it means to be goodness, even though there's no responsibility, there's no reason for him to do any of this. There's so many excuses that he could have made, but he works for this man's injustice. There's so many half-truths, there's so many things, but he's true to who this person is. He's made in the image of God. He has value. He is important. And so he picks up this man and takes him to the inn. And now, so there's five, there's five things that this man does, that this Samaritan does for this man, that I, that I think is what models and, and things that we can do in order to have a goodness culture. Five things. The first one is, no matter the time, do the truth, do truth and justice. Make time for goodness. The, the priest and the Levite, they were important people and they had places to be, important things to do, so they left him there. And, and I bet if he asked the Samaritan, he probably had somewhere to be too. So no one travels along a dangerous road because they got nothing to do. But he still made the time to stop. He made the time to take the man to an inn and, and you know, it would have been out of his way, it would have been in a Jewish town... Uh, but we, we equally find ourselves excusing ourselves from goodness because we have important things to do, because we don't have time. But we ought to make time for goodness. Think less about our importance and the important stuff that we have to do, but make time for goodness. Uh, and the good thing about this is that, that we see Jesus do this. This isn't just something that we're called to do blindly. Jesus took the time to come down to earth to die for us. He didn't take any shortcuts. He didn't come down at 30. He came down as a child. Mate, he went through everything. Having to figure out how to walk, going through puberty, having to deal with school, ATAR, carpentry, like everything. He took the time so that he could die on the cross for us. Jesus made the time. Even though he's God, even though there was, there was no need for him to take the time for us, Jesus took the time for us. So make time for goodness. Second one. No matter the person, do truth and justice. Do goodness to people that are hard. The Samaritans and the Jews were enemies... And in fact, if you, if you happen to kind of expect the Samaritan to do anything, it would have been either finish the job or see if there's anything left to take that the robbers didn't. Like, they, they hated each other. And even in, in most circles in that kind of culture, that, you know, we, we talk about how, how the Bible says, love, love your neighbour. And the way that a lot of uh, people who, who followed the Bible would interpret that is they'd say, the Bible says, love your neighbour but you should also hate your enemy. I say, do good and, and love people who God has chosen and people who he's cast aside. Do whatever. That was, that was the way that, that was what was preached from the, from the pulpit back in those days. 
And so if you came across someone that was your enemy and hated you, you've got straight from the preacher, like, I know that I, I hate this person and I can do whatever, like, off you go, mate, see you later. This is just, it's just what the preacher told me to do. But, but instead, he shows him love. Because the truth is, loving your neighbour is more than, than just whoever's in your immediate circle. Loving your neighbour is not just the people that are good to you. Loving your neighbour means loving even those who are your enemy. Loving those and doing good to those even when they do you wrong. And Jesus does this as well. Because even while we were his enemies, even while we did wrong to him, what did Jesus do? He died. Jesus did goodness to us even while we were still sinners, even while we hated him, even while we rejected him, even while we rebelled against him, Jesus died for us. So do goodness even to people that are hard. Next one. No matter the risk, do goodness even when it hurts. By stopping on the road and providing aid to the wounded man, the Samaritan put himself in harm's way. He would have taken a Jewish man to a Jewish inn in a Jewish community where people would have looked not terribly kindly on the guy for carrying around a half-dead Jewish man. There was a lot of risk in the Samaritan picking up this guy and taking him along to the inn. The, The good that the Samaritan did didn't come without risk there could have been, something could have bad could have very easily happened to him, but he still chose to do it. And, and when, we, when we look to Jesus, there's a lot of risk in dying. Like, he, he definitely got hurt. He died on the cross for us. Like, the most painful death that's known to man, Jesus came and, and did it no matter the risk, no matter how much it was going to hurt, Jesus died for us. So do goodness, even when there's risk, even when it might hurt, even when people might come back to bite you because of what you've done. Do goodness, no matter, even when it hurts, no matter the risk. Fourth one, no matter the cost. Do good, even when it means losing what's ours. The Samaritan man used his own resources. It would have been like his own kind of first aid kit. You know, used his own donkey, carried the guy, had to walk the rest of the way, even though he had a bung knee. And and then he took him and paid for his inn. And and it's probably like this, like it's a couple of denarii. That was probably three or four days wages. Like it's a lot of money. And he says, if there's anything else, if the guy decides to stay for, you know, six months, I'll pay it. No worries. No matter the cost, I'm going to pay it back. And sometimes we, we hold back from doing goodness because it means losing something as ours. It means that we might have to give up something that we worked hard for. It might, might mean lose, losing something that, that might be valuable to us. And so sometimes goodness means that there's a cost involved. But when we look to Jesus... He gave us his righteousness. He gave us what was his. Even though we didn't deserve, that wasn't ours. We didn't deserve his righteousness. 
That was what he worked hard for. That was what belonged to him, yet he gave it to us. Because he gave it to us, he had to die for us. There was a huge cost. And it was what belonged to him. It didn't in no way belong to us. So do good no matter the cost. Last one. No matter the thank you. Do good even when there's no gratitude. There's no guarantee that the Samaritan got anything in return. There's no guarantee that the man would be thankful. There's no guarantee that he'd ever see him again. There's no, there's no even guarantee that the guy would have any kind of you know, kindness or do anything nice for a Samaritan man ever again. Just sweet, good to go. Thank goodness that idiot took care of me. Back to my job at hunting down Samaritans. No matter what, no matter what that scenario entailed, the Samaritan man took him and cared for him. And sometimes we hold back from doing good because we know that people won't be grateful. We know that they're just going to take it, they're just going to take advantage of us. And that's not to say that we, we do things that are unwise, but we do it no matter the gratitude. No matter how much someone's actually going to really be thankful or, or gracious that, they, that, they, that, they, that we showed them goodness. But when we look to Jesus, we, we take advantage of what he gives us all the time. That all the time, we, 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 can't, we know that we're covered by grace. We know that we can get away with stuff. We know that, 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 that everything is covered. And so we, we don't show gratitude to Jesus for what he's done for us. And there's, every day, we're not thankful enough for what we've really been given if we're honest with ourselves. Like we're, we're not thankful enough for what Jesus has given us, are we? Jesus, Jesus gave us everything and it was regardless. Imagine if he was praying in Gethsemane and he was like, God, I don't think they're going to be really thankful about this. Having second thoughts. No, he didn't care. He knew that we would take advantage of him. We'd know that, that people would try and use grace to get away with stuff. He knew that we wouldn't be as thankful as what we should be and that, that we would be like, yep, thanks for the grace, Jesus. Off I go about my normal life. He, he did it no matter what, no matter the thank you, no matter the gratitude. So do goodness no matter the gratitude. It's going to lead us into a, a time of communion. Um, and, and I want us to think about how, 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 good, how much goodness Jesus shows us. How undeserving we are. As we come, as we, as we look at the bread and as we, as we look at the, the, the wine or the grape juice, it's a reminder that Jesus died for us no matter what. Jesus shows the goodness of, of grace no matter what. No matter the time, no matter the person, no matter the risk, no matter the cost, no matter the thank you. Jesus came down, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross. Regardless of what we've done. Regardless of who we are. Jesus died for us. Came to the cross. 
died in our place so that we could be free. So that we don't have to face the punishment that we deserve for all the unjust ways and all the unjust things that we do. For all the time that that we may ignore people on the side of the road that need our help. For all the times that that we don't do goodness. For all the times that we evade goodness or, or break goodness. Jesus dies for us. And so we come before him and we, we, look at, we look at the cracker that we have and we say, this is, this is his body. This is his body that was broken for us. This is what Jesus gave up for us. And so we take it and we remember him. Next we come to the grape juice. And the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he took the cup saying, this is the new covenant with my blood, which is poured out for you. And so when we look at this and we remember and that Jesus gave us a new covenant, Jesus gave us his righteousness. Jesus gave us a promise of a future with him, gave us a promise of eternal life, no matter what, no matter what. And so we drink and we remember that promise. Father, you loved us no matter what. You send your son to die for us no matter what. Lord, we don't deserve any of it. We didn't do the things that we should. But you still chose to come down. Lord, we want to thank you for that. We want to remember and be gracious for what you've done. And Lord, we want to follow in in what you've done for us. We want to do good. So Lord, we ask that you would help us because we we struggle. Because it's hard. So Lord, help us to be good. No No matter the time, no matter the person, no matter the risk, no matter the cost, no matter the thank you, help us to be good and to do good to others. Help us to develop a culture of goodness. Help us to to stay on the truth. Help us to to stay locked into what is just. And help us to love you. In your name we pray. Amen.